Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Well, hello and welcome to another Wagon Wheel. Uh, Lots of great questions to get through. I've got my new microphone, well, my same microphone, but has been sent back to me after my kids broke it. Uh, So I'm all pumped up to go. Remember, if you wanna ask questions on this podcast, the best way to do it is to become a subscriber on Patreon. Uh, go over there, you get heaps of things like our Discord channel and uh, other exclusives and, and and all sorts of things that you get. But the most important thing, I think, at the moment, as we speak, is the fact that you get, uh, get to ask questions on here. If you are watching on YouTube, of course, and you want to ask questions while we're going live, remember, Super Chat is your other best option. But let us start with the show, and we will go with Ian, who says, Are England about to mess up Johnny Besto yet again this summer? Having called him in and out of the team, batted him three to seven, taking the gloves off him, giving them back, taking them again. Are they about to ask him to open in test cricket? Possibly. I mean, I don't know, Ian, is the, the truthful answer to that. I think I've become a bit of a Johnny Bairstow truther in that through, I was quite obsessed with Josh Bartlett coming back into the team. When he came back in to bat at number seven uh, with Ed Smith's uh, gamble, which didn't quite work, but also didn't quite fail. It was kind of somewhere in between, if we're being honest. But once you bring in a specialist number seven, it's such a weird dynamic for the team. And when you already had Johnny Bairstow around, it feels like to me that they've done everything and they can in their tool toolbox to ruin Johnny Bairstow. He might have to open in this team because they're probably going to take Harry Brook over him. But after what he did last summer, it just all feels so ridiculous. Um, And that's the problem again and again. I have said before that I think, you know, I think Pope is probably the other weaker link in this side. So there is a possibility that Bairstow could bat at number three or Root could move to three um, or even Stokes, I suppose, could move to three. And so it doesn't have to be Bairstow again being moved around. I think Bairstow's best position, it probably is five or six. And the problem with that, of course, is that if he's not playing as the wicketkeeper, which he currently isn't, 
and they've got an all-rounder already in that side and they've got another young player coming in it just makes all that trickier and I think that's been the biggest problem with Besto in his career really is that he's probably a number five or six um maybe even a six or seven I suppose you know he I don't think he averages over 40 at the moment and yet we know what he could do at the top end but we also know what he could do at the other end he's a fascinating cricketer i will probably ian if we're being honest do a video on him i did a massive video a couple of years ago on joss butler when we first started this channel and it was a really really interesting story the problem with it is that essentially it was too big a project at that stage for us to actually um work out how to make but there's a huge amount of stuff in that project that is also about Bairstow. And I think what I want to do now, especially with Bairstow and Basball, is actually go back to the start of that project, take out the good bits and start again, because there's so much great stuff about Butler and Bairstow together. But also Bairstow is such a strong character and I've never done anything on him, despite the fact that I've been absolutely, utterly um, obsessed by him pretty much from the moment he started. In fact, Try to remember if this is his first test. If it wasn't his first test, it was very early on when he played in Melbourne in the end of the 2013-14 Ashes. Literally, I wrote like a thousand words on his practice, his wicketkeeping practice before that test, which was about as bad as I've ever seen a professional wicketkeeper practice. Christopher says, do you think we'll ever see IPL owners look to form links with counties? Uh, it's already started to happen, Christopher. So there are, have been several uh, meetings and conversations between county teams and um, IPL owners. Uh, there's been talks of uh, county teams selling their 100 side or the ECB's 100 side out to someone else. There's a lot of moving parts to it that doesn't particularly do very well. Like for instance, if someone, if an IPL owner wants to buy a county, uh, sorry, a 100 team who has access to the training facilities. And I know it sounds like a stupid thing, but the the home team is still going to want that uh the money i thought the money that was offered was very very high i feel like since then because of what's happened with major and uh, major league cricket perhaps that money offer isn't quite as high as it would have been before but there's a lot of different things but there's no doubt that ipl there are some ipl owners who are you know anglophobes you know manoj badali was probably the most obvious one uh, who would buy a hundred team slash you know has already been involved in counter cricket before but i think there's quite a few of the others that would see it as well it's a, i think it's a good investment um the hundred if you could get your hands on it but at the moment they're not available to be bought aditya says what do you make of the new ipl rule wherein the teams can announce their 11 after the toss do you see this rule ever make it to international cricket I think if you're going to have the player X substitution type rules or whatever they're called in every different league now, the old super sub rule, this is the only way to do it. And the best way to do it is you now know what you're going to be doing first. You can decide on your 11 and then you can decide in the second half of the game who you might want available to you. I think this is a much better way of doing it than anything else. I think we're just getting closer and closer to just in-game substitutions in T20 cricket. And that my first thought when I saw this rule was, we're not far away from that now. Um, will we see it in international cricket? We've already seen the super sub in international cricket. It, it's interesting because we've got the 100, we've now got the big bash that's a little bit different. You know, the IPL has got its own rules. Um, I'm trying to think of, I think there's, well, there's certainly uh, home ground rules for other teams um, as they go as well. But, what international cricket should be able to do in the future is pick the ones that it thinks will work best for them. Whether it does that or not, I don't know. Joel says, um, given the statement that DeAndre Dalton has put out 
where are the boundaries between respecting personal privacy, confidentiality of medical records, and public information of a player's injuries or illnesses? Seems a particular issue for franchise tournaments. Yeah, it's a really weird one. Um, you, I, 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 I'm trying to remember the old player contracts. I think there is a certain amount of information that can be passed on from a player. Uh, generally, I would have thought in the better run leagues, you would have the player's consent before anything is put out there personally. I think in Deandra's case, it was more that she thought she was fully fit and that they were using a previous injury to get out of a contract with her. And I think, you know, from the tone of her letter, she, it's actually, I talked about it on Uncovered the other day, but it's really interesting. It's, it's hard to tell from the tone of her letter if she's saying there was a miscommunication here and I got screwed over, or if she's saying they wanted to move on from me and I've got screwed over. But I, I don't think in that particular case, um, the personal uh, privacy confidentiality, because I think what they originally said, uh, the IPL team was nothing, or the WPL team. I think they just said something along the lines of, she's being replaced by Kim Gass because she's injured. So I don't think in that case, what you're talking about directly comes to it. Players are aware that their injuries will be made public. Um, that is part of playing professional sport. But there is, there is a, you know, I remember there was a really interesting one a few years ago where KP was really upset that someone had written a piece about his um, knee injury and he and that he would need a further surgery or something. I can't remember the exact detail. And KP took to Twitter to um, shit on that story, but the journalist who'd written on it had his medical records and had been shared, I assume, and I'm only making assumption here, by the team. Um, I th KP was angry that this journalist had information that he thought was incorrect. He really should have been angry that any information had got out about him at all. Um, because that, that seems like a complete lack of privacy. Although, Joel, if you're looking for the king of this, the absolute greatest moment ever in releasing too much information, it was when Shah Bakhtar uh, was left out of a team by Pakistan and the PCB said he had genital warts. In fact, a funny follow-on from that is when I was trying to get press accreditation when I was back as a blogger, one of the things that they said I couldn't do is because I might make jokes about players having genital warts. And I had to tell the ECB that the article that they were referring to was not actually a joke about genital warts. It was quite legitimately a cricket board releasing a press release about Shoabakta having genital warts. Anyway, I, don't, I should say Shoabakta denied having genital warts. I have said genital warts more on this cricket podcast than anyone has since that the PCB released that original statement. Oh, Neil says, baseball has given cricket the knuckleball and it's one of the factors in improving in fielding. Yeah, a little bit, definitely. What has been passed the other way, especially more recently? Well, the whole game has been passed their way, to be fair. <laughs> uh, so, so from that perspective, they can thank us for having a sport. Um, you know, if it wasn't for cricket and rounders, there is no baseball. You would argue if this wasn't for cricket, there's no rounders and there's no baseball, etc., etc. Uh, the big one is, and I don't know how much this is directly involved, but traditionally... Baseball fielders have not moved. They've gone in very, very set patterns, generally, you know, spread across the entire field. And then over the last few years, uh, we've certainly seen the case in professional, uh, in Major League Baseball, uh, they call it the shift. I don't know how much that has to do with cricket, but I find it kind of, if it, if it has, if that didn't come from cricket, then you actually have to question what baseballers were doing for, well, the first shift, I think, was in 1950s for uh, Ted Williams. You have to argue that what were baseball doing for the next 60 years because even a casual look at cricket would have told you that players don't 
tend to hit the ball in the same positions over and over again and that you need to move the fielders uh, to accommodate that. And, you know, the, certainly that was the case. I can't think of anything directly. So when you're talking about um, the knuckleball was certainly split finger slow ball was another one. They both came from baseball. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, the, the other one you said fielding, wasn't it? So we had a couple of guys come in from uh, fielding. Uh, baseball fielding is obviously a little bit different, but there are certainly some things. I, I think that partly because of the amount of time that you're out in the field as a baseball fielder compared to a cricket fielder, there is a big difference in the amount of effort that baseball fielders put in um, and how important stopping each individual run is. Like if, if there's only seven runs hit in a game, stopping a run is absolutely huge. Whereas if there is 850 runs scored in a game. So I think there was there's certainly a difference there. Um, and I think the throwing was one of the, the key things that really, really changed in cricket. And I think that was really baseball affected. Um, relay stuff was another thing that, you know, traditionally not really something um, as part of cricket that was brought through from baseball as well. Um, so, yeah, there is, it's, it's also, one thing I would say is that, you know, baseballers do the very low, sharp throws to each other, but that's a little bit easier when the other player has a glove. And so there are specific differences between the two. I can't think of anything, but I will say this. I know that there are a lot of people in baseball at the moment um, looking to cricket to see what cricket does next um, because I'm getting asked questions by baseball people occasionally. You know, is cricket doing this? Has cricket thought of this? Can you think of a parable uh, for cricket? Um, and so it certainly has changed. It certainly is happening in a way that wasn't five years ago from what I could tell. Sandeep says, how do you see Cam Greer's career panning out? Is he more likely to finish with a career like Shane Watson or Jax Callis? Um, he's a much better bowler than Shane Watson. And I thought young Shane Watson was a very good bowler, but I don't think he had... He had pace, but he didn't really have control. And later on, when he had control, he didn't have any pace. He was a very handy bowler, but also he couldn't bowl that much um, because of his body. Um, so... You would assume that if you can get 15 overs a day out or 12 to 15 overs a day out of Cam Green, uh, he, because of his height, uh, even if he loses pace like Watson did, he should still be a very, very handy bowler. You know, Watson was more of a de grand home, whereas obviously Cam Green can be a lot more than that. I mean, to say he'll be callous, you're saying he's going to be, you know, one of the 10 most effective players we've ever had in the history of cricket. So... I mean, that's a huge call. I don't think his batting is anywhere near Callis's level. I think his batting and his bowling is slightly better than Shane Watson's level. But there's how he develops, whether he can get over this whole LBW bold issue. He's still not very accurate with his lengths at the moment. He feels like a very immature bowler to me at the moment. But because he has pace and height, you know, you, it, it's not the end of the world. Um, so there's a lot to like for him. Uh, he, you know, he should be, if he was, what, 10% better than, or 15% better than Shane Watson, you'd be saying, well, he averages low 40s with the bat and averages maybe, you know, 30 to 32 with the ball, but um, can take you two, two and a half wickets a game, which obviously Shane Watson only had a very small period of his career where he ever did that. That would make uh, Cameron Green a great all-rounder. You know, th those numbers would be right up there. If he could somehow get his bowling average just under 30, which I think in some ways he probably has. I think he's more keen to bowl than Callis ever was. 
So if he can manage to keep his bowling average at like 28 or 29 on two and a half wickets a game while batting at five or six and averaging for over 40, you know, you're talking about then the only players who average over 40 uh, with the bat and under 30 with the ball in the history of all-rounders is, is someone like Aubrey Faulkner. Um, and I think we, you know, we know uh, Jadeja has an outside chance of, of getting to those sorts of numbers as well with, if his batting keeps going the way that it is. Um, that would be huge. But even if he averages, what, over 35 with the bat. So if he averages 38, 39 with the bat and 31 with the ball and takes two, two and a half wickets a game, that's kind of Ben Stokes level, right? Um, I think he's probably a better bat, all things considered, than Ben Stokes, but he may not because of the floor he has with the with the front foot. I'm not sure he quite gets to that level. But I think that's a, that's a very interesting, you know, that's a very good one to go to. I think if you look at, uh, uh, you know, if you look at Watson, um, he probably averages what high thirties with the bat and low thirties with the ball, but didn't take as many wickets as he probably could have, and didn't have the same kind of impact that Cameron Green can. Satchmo says, "Do historic allegations of ball tampering in any way diminish the greatness of Imran, Wazim, or Wakar? I'll put an asterisk next to their feet. For example, Wakar's strike rate in his first four years was off the charts, thirty-six point two up to twenty-six tests. You can't get the ball to consistently reverse swing without tampering with it." That's not about Wazim Wakar, Imran. That's about every single bowler you have ever seen who in two out of three test matches got any reverse swing, someone has tampered with that ball. There are times when the ball can be made to reverse fairly naturally. There are certain grounds and pitches that help with this sort of thing. We know there are great old stories about West Indian bowlers getting the ball to reverse and not even knowing how they had done it. It can happen through natural causes. And um, and it can happen by just looking after the ball really well. But essentially, if your team is consistently getting the ball to reverse swing, um, you are getting it, uh, you are doing it illegally. So when you say, it's really interesting that Satchmo, that you mentioned Imran, Wazim and Wakar, but you don't mention Dale Stane. Geez, he got the ball to reverse swing a lot, <laughs> right? Geez, that England team got the ball to reverse swing a lot. Geez, Indi modern Indian bowlers have got the ball to reverse swing a lot. There's a lot of bowlers around the world who have done this. Um, and there is an element of tampering with the ball. But as I talked about recently, I think people think reverse swing is when tampering with the ball started. <laughs> Cricket balls have been tampered with since we had them. Bowlers have always tampered with the ball. Um, people putting illegal stuff on their foreheads, you know, if you ever played club cricket, someone's probably tried Vaseline on their forehead at one stage, coming in, facing a guy uh, with a brand new ball whose head's shinier than the ball is. <laughs> um, uh, uh, bowlers with one big thumbnail, picking at the seam, all these sorts of things. You know, uh, my guess is there is no bowler who has ever played test cricket with over 200 wickets who has not done something to the ball to make it more in their favour. And... I don't know why this isn't talked about much, but if you talk to cricketers behind it, it's a bit like the throwing thing. If you talk to a fast bowler and you'll say, did you ever throw? They're always like, yeah. Sometimes they'll say completely by accident. They'll, they'll just be like, they came in to bowl a ball, their action fell apart, something went wrong um, and the ball did something weird. Um, and they were like, oh, I think I pinged that. Um, and sometimes they'll be like, when I bowled my bouncer, just occasionally on a bad day, I would, I would you know, throw it a little bit. The Henry O'Longa chuck. It's probably the best, you know, the best example of that where 
It was a flat pitch against pretty good Pakistani batters. Um, he was probably just a bit frustrated and he's like, well, I'm just going to come in and ping this one down. Um, these things happen all the time. It's really, really um, part of cricket. And it's one of those things that hasn't been talked about. It, I think it's one of those things that I don't think cricket's ever been covered correctly. And I've talked about this a lot. And it's these sorts of things that should be mentioned more often. And if they were, you know, maybe we wouldn't got to a point where, you know, uh, the sandpaper gate thing happened. Um, but ball tampering isn't taken seriously by the officials. They let it happen over and over again. It's literally one camera at the ground with a long lens following the ball and no one would ever be able to tamper with it again. Um, that's all they need, an independent camera operator following the ball. Um, they don't want to do that. They actually... This is the one thing I would say about sports is you have to understand, especially now, but I think this has always been the case. Sports don't want to find the scandal. They don't want to find their players doing drugs. That's why sports like the NFL and cricket waited forever to bring in blood testing. 2017 cricket brought blood testing in for drugs. <laughs> Because up until that point, no one had ever thought of uh, trying a uh, drug that uh, <laughs> that could only be found, you know, that could be found in your blood supply and not in your um, urine. Um, so sports don't want to find these things out, and so they go out of their way. So it's really interesting that people still talk about, you know, Imran was Imran Waka. Um, reverse swing isn't just a Pakistani thing either. There were certainly other teams doing it, not on their level, and they hadn't perfected it as well as Pakistan had. That's certainly uh, true. But there were certainly other teams that could do it at times. It wasn't just a Pakistani thing. You can trace it back to early, no, late 1960s, uh, Victoria. It was being done in shield cricket. Um, the MCG is a pitch that certainly was helping with it at that stage. Um, Waka Yunus was... Um, it, Waka Yunus was helped by that, but in the same way that modern bowlers are helped by the fact that they live in the wobble ball seam. And if, you if you're a fast bowler and you retired in 2016 and you had a bowling average of 34, you probably missed out on having a bowling average of 24 afterwards. Like these things do happen and it is part of, uh, you know, different pitches, different results. Like, uh, I mean, me and Abhishek Mukherjee had a fight on the phone the other day about who was better, uh, Ashwin or Anil Kumble. He still has Kumble ahead of him. I don't think that's the case. I think Ashwin is a far more tricky proposition than Kumble ever was consistently. And I thought I'm a huge Kumble guy. But the truth is that their numbers don't even look like they're comparable to each other because Kumble didn't bowl in an era that was particularly, um, you know, I don't think his home average was, uh, he bowled on some of the worst bowling pitches of all times in India. You've got to factor all those things in. And I think that is... If, it's not just the ball tampering when, when you're talking about that, because that's, that, that, that's pretty common for everyone. What I would say is you're talking about three bowlers who bowled when they had perfected something that no one else had. Uh, that is a huge, huge advantage anyway. And you have to factor that into their overall numbers, whether they did it legally or not. Doesn't, you know, that's, that's as I said, if we start taking wickets away or start putting asterisks on anyone uh, who's uh, tampered with the ball, Think there's going to be a lot of asterisks in, in test cricket graham says if your idea of proper subs in cricket was implemented uh would england still have dominated white ball cricket since 2015 and which team would benefit the most from the rule change okay england since 2015 
Yes, because then they would have had Hales. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other players. Yeah, because they'd probably still pick Hales and then they'd have Moen automatically in that side. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other players that they have. Trying, yeah, am I missing anyone else? Butler. Yeah, because I still think that they would have had 10 guys who could absolutely tonk it. So I think that would have been a huge advantage to them. I think the team that instantly comes to mind, that well, the two teams that instantly come to mind are probably South Africa and Australia, just because they could probably get eight to 10 guys who can whack it in one-day cricket. And they've got, you know, five pretty good one-day bowlers at any one time. I don't think either of them would struggle for that. Certainly South Africa, Australia would have got that if that was how those games would have been played. So I think England would have been as good, but I'm not sure they would have dominated as much with the ball. You should probably still play Plunkett. You play Rashid. Moinelli probably still bowls a little bit. They're still probably missing that other secondary spinner. Joffre's there. Wokes is there. Yeah, it's... England would have been interesting. They're probably still, like, one absolute frontline bowler away but maybe they still have the option though of because they would still have Moinelli and Stokes in their side and Joe Root and Liam Livingston might have played earlier as well in that situation so if you've got Livingston Salt Hales all coming into that side um you know Livingston would have bowled a little bit so maybe they still have that advantage but it, it seems like South Africa is the obvious answer because they pick five bowlers and then they back it up with 10 batters they never have to worry about that that split that they've had before New Zealand's probably another one as well, although Santon's done a pretty good job for them at seven, but that would certainly strength, wouldn't have strengthened their side and it would have allowed them to bring some of those hitty guys in earlier. So you could have mixed it up a little bit and had you know a couple of hitters like Finn Allen and um, some of those other guys that are coming through and mixing them up with the sort of more conventional batters, allowing Guptal off the leash, all those sorts of things, I think would have been quite interesting for them. Um, India would have allowed them to have a flexibility with their spinners. So, if, especially because you still play Hardik, right? Hardik plays as one of your 10 batters. So you've got an extra seamer in your lineup straight away, which means that they can go in with three spinners every time and just use the spinners who work best on that surface and, and phase the other ones out. And if Akshar, Jadeja, and, and Ashwin are you know even one or two of those spinners, you've still got extra batting again. So you can actually play, you know, Akshar is your number 10 batter, um, Jadeja is your number 9 batter, and, and Hardy Panda is your number 8 batter, and have and have a flexibility, so it would help them. I mean, there's no team it wouldn't help, I suppose. But those are the obvious ones that, that, um, uh, that come to mind. Think of Pakistan. Yeah, Pakistan. Would it allow them to play more Asif Ali? I'm trying to think if they had a second Asif Ali back in that period because you could play two two players like him um i mean maybe this this might sound a bit random because he's probably past his birth but does it allow you to play shahida fridi a little bit longer after 2015 if that's the point that it comes in uh because you can play shahida fridi as a bowler and just send him up the order right could be fun Bloody Bogger says, I started following cricket seriously when Sri Lanka won the Asia Cup and the T20 World Cup in 2014. Between then and now, what was the darkest year for Sri Lanka cricket? For me, it would be somewhere between 2016 and 2017. Sitting president of SLC um, in that time, 
uh, was also the co-owner of his family's betting bookmaking company. Oh, you don't want to get into some of the um, Sri Lankan officials, that's for sure. Um, I would have thought that the worst time in Sri Lanka cricket was the moment when, was it three or four players got sent home from Durham? The, the management was at its absolute worst. I think that was the point when their women's team stopped playing altogether. It looked like they're going to completely slip out of relevance. I'm trying to remember, had Mickey Arthur just lost the job at that point? Or was he about to lose the job? Uh, that from and, and then when was the players' strike? Is that around that era as well? When literally they gave the cap, captaincy, you know, to um, Shanaka because he was um, wanted it and everyone else was talking about going on strike and, and everything else. So uh, that to me is the, I don't know how much that all overlaps, all those things. It just got dark. Every every news story out of Sri Lanka at that point was really, really poor. Really up until the 2021 T20. Uh, I would say up until that point, there were real fears about what was happening in Sri Lanka cricket. You know, that next generation wasn't coming through. Um, they weren't producing bowlers um, at the level that, you know, and, and they've always been more of a batting nation. They weren't producing any bowlers that looked like they should be playing international cricket. You could tell that Lakmal, who'd finally had like two, three good years, maybe four good years, was, you know, coming to the end of his spell. There were no obvious captains. Uh, no one, I, I, I promise you, I was never offered a job by Sri Lanka cricket, but I think I'm not the only one of my friends who wasn't. It was like, it was really bad. Everyone was being offered jobs. Um, and people were laughing about it and not taking those jobs because they like, this isn't going anywhere. It was a horrendous, horrendous period for Sri Lanka cricket. Ben says, why are, uh, why are body line error fielding restrictions two behind a leg on the, two behind square on the leg side still in place? They don't discourage bouncers, seeing the Wagner. If we made the laws today, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have them. Should they be removed? So this is a fun fact that very few people know. Ben, the body line did not change the fielding position. It had an effect on it, but they actually continued to play with that field for... I want to say until the early 1950s, you could have as many players as you wanted behind fine leg. The reason they stopped it wasn't because of bounces, because after the after body line, people didn't bowl bounces as much. Really, bounces don't come back into fashion until late 50s, early 60s. The reason that they stopped doing it is what you had is you had off spinners bowling really, really wide on the crease or even pitching the ball, uh, coming around the wicket and bowling outside leg stump, bowling with like two leg slips, a deep backward square and a deep fine leg. Uh, in-swing bowlers, again, bowling with these ridiculous fields, and the cricket was horrendous. These guys were going for like one, one and a half runs and over. No one could play any proper shots off them. Uh, you couldn't really even, like, reverse sweep, I think, was sort of there and thereabouts in cricket. But it was, you, the, where the ball was being pitched was so ridiculous um, that even playing a reverse sweep would have been a huge thing. It's a horrendous, horrendous side of cricket. That is why it's happened. And it's the same... It's the same with body line. Body line actually was kind of boring from a similar po point of view in that it changes where you can... It, put it this way. What Neil Wagner did with a body line field would be way harder to play against because essentially at that point, he probably comes around the wicket rather than over the wicket. He probably pitches each bouncer on off stump angling down the leg side. You would have a deep backward square, a, a fine leg and a long leg. You probably have a leg slip and a leg gully and everything's angling down there. And what's the counter to that if you're a batter? 
the natural angle of a pull or a hook shot is probably going behind square because of the angle that Wagner is bowling on. Um, it would be, if you think Wagner would be bad, is bad to watch now, it would be five to 10 times worse with this particular field. It just, with a lot of those laws that people often say, oh, why do we have this law? Why, why can't you be LBW if the ball's pitched outside leg stump? It's not to penalize the bowler. It's that if we did that, bowlers would almost always bowl outside leg stump. And that would restrict the amount of shots. And essentially what they did with those, with that particular fielding law, exactly the same with what they did with the LBW law when batters were padding away is they went, this is not encouraging good attacking cricket. If it's not, and if, if players can't play all the shots and bowlers are just going to allow them to play one kind of shot, then you have to change it. So that is why those decisions were made and it's nothing else. And look, it's not particularly well known. I'm, I'm not having a go at you for that. And Bodyline did play a part. I'm pretty sure from the memory of the notes um, when they made the uh, decisions, you have to talk to the MCC directly, but I know Bodyline was brought up uh, at least in the media at that time, but I'm pretty sure in the meetings themselves because they knew that someone was going to do it again, right? And one of the reasons a body line was so much more effective uh, than bowling bounces today is the ability to just completely pack that leg side field. Um, and it really does, if, if you are playing and the only shots that you can play are one or two different shots, it's really not cricket at that point, right? It's a different kind of sport. Nanan says, what are the strengths and weaknesses of somebody like Ashdeep, who is a lefty and naturally moves the ball away from a right-hander? Well, there's his first one. It's that he naturally moves the ball away from a right-hander. That is, you know, the, the only the only left-arm bowlers who swing the ball away from right-handers are, I would say, bowlers who use reverse swing. Uh, Freddie Wild was looking um, that up because he, he sent me a message recently saying, actually, our left-arm is in the database that swing the ball away. And, I, and so what I asked him was, how many of those do it? in the first 20 overs when the ball's new compared to when it's reversing, because you can certainly do it when it reverses. So Ashley being able to do that is huge, right? Because what it does is, especially because he can swing it both ways. Firstly, I think if you can control swing in both directions, I think that is the new super skill in T20 cricket because we have so few genuine swing, swing bowlers anymore. Your ability to swing it both ways is a bit like your ability to um, spin the ball in both directions as a spinner. So those first three overs, if you know you can get two of those and you can do some of that, that's huge. For Arshdeep, what it does particularly as well is if he's bowling to someone who likes the ball swinging back in, he has the ability to come around the wicket, angle the ball into them and swing it away. I've always thought that's the dream. I think that's what modern left-arm bowlers should be taught, how to swing that ball the other way, if at all possible. Um, I don't even think they come around the wicket and try cutters enough because it's an incredible ball. We've seen Mustafa do it at his best. We saw Mitchell Johnson do it for about a summer in Australia. It's unplayable. If you do it with swing, it's even better again. Uh, so I think Arshdeep is absolutely brilliant from that point of view. I think his weakness is that he's not particularly fast and he's not particularly tall. Uh, he's decent at both, but you know, there's nothing, there's nothing outlier about those particular things. But I think for me, He's just accurate enough and just fast enough compared to, say, someone like Sam Curran, that that combination of those two things is really, really handy. But then the important thing, I think, now is his ability to swing it both ways. You just don't see left-arm bowlers. You don't see many right-arm bowlers who swing it both ways now. Certainly, left-arm bowlers, it's just not a thing at all. And really, I don't think we've had anyone who can control the new ball swinging in both directions since Wazim Akram, and he did pretty well. Right, and even if you're a slower version than him, I think that's pretty good. The other thing I really like about Arshdeep later on in the game 
is that I do think he's very clever at reading batters and putting the ball just... There are some bowlers who are very good at playing to the batter's weakness or to their strength. I think the very best death bowlers have the ability to go between the two. This is what I do, but actually for this guy, that may not work. I think Arshdeep is someone who maybe gets that a little bit. Madden says, uh, Shaheen, Gill, Green, Brook seem to be the next line uh, to be the best players in the world for the next decade. Who can you think can compete with them? Uh, yeah, I think Rishabh Pant's already in that uh, one. Uh, Rashid Khan, yeah. Hasaranga, I would have just a tier below. Shadab Khan's a really, really interesting one. It just depends on whether his batting develops to that point. Um, who else have you missed here? You missed Marco Janssen. Uh, he's certainly going to be another one. Um, um, uh, Dewell Brevis is probably someone who should be in that class. <sighs> trying to think of anyone else. Um, yeah, those are the obvious ones. I'm trying to think if there's anyone else who's you know, a genuine 10-year player uh, who's going to dominate. I feel like I'm missing someone really, really obvious out there. Um, but yeah, um, those are the ones. Cameron Green. That's going to annoy me, madam. But um, yeah, I'd certainly put Pant um, in, in with that top group at the moment. You've got Gil there, don't you? I still like proof for sure, but hey, he may never get another chance. Uh, Raju says, we see bowlers change the length and angle of delivery, pace of delivery to deceive the batter. Why don't we see bowlers in effect change the length by bowling from as far behind the popping crease as legally possible? This might create just that bit of doubt in the batter to miss time the shot in T20 cricket. We do see it. Uh, Mark Watt and Karen Pollard are two experts at this. Um, we see a couple of other bowlers who do it a little bit further back. A lot of it is just about the fact that it is not a particularly easy skill to do. I don't know, Raju, if you've ever tried it in club cricket, you find that the people who can do it kind of can do it and the people who can't do it kind of can't do it, um, if that makes sense. And it's a really hard thing to be able to do um, consistently and then land it on a good length because that's what you have to be able to do. The What you're saying makes sense, but unless it lands on a good length, it doesn't really work. And being able to hit a good length from a meter back, two meters back, you know, what would Karen Pollard and Mark Watt be? Three meters back, maybe? Four meters back? Is really, really hard. Um, and that's part of the reason uh, that people have trouble with it. But yeah, it's something that bowlers already do. Uh, I'm not sure if it'll ever get much bigger in cricket, but it's certainly something that already exists. All right. Well, thank you to everyone on Patreon. Remember, if you want your questions absolutely guaranteed to be answered, Patreon or a Super Chat are your best option. I'm going to go through the questions uh, in a moment. Shout out to Krishnav, uh, who sent in a Super Chat. Thank you very much. Uh, let's us get on. So DM95 says, when evaluating the merits of the Fab Four, how big a factor is that the Kane bats at number three while the others have spent the bulk of their careers at number four? I guess Kane is in often the earliest against a new ball. See, I would factor this in, and I do think it needs to be factored in, where it's an interesting one because I think from 2000 to 2010 was the first generation ever where number fours outscored number threes. Don't quote me on that, but that's my memory. And, or out-averaged, I should say. And that was because who moved at that stage? Callis moved, Tendulka moved. There's a couple of others, aren't there? Um but it basically, you know, there was a couple of holdouts like people like Ricky Ponting um, 
I'm trying to remember where Lara was by that point as well. But the majority of the better batters had slotted into number four. And I would argue if you're batting at number four, you have slightly less impact on the game than you do if you're batting on number three at number three. And so that number three is a more pivotal position from that point of view. But I can also understand the idea that if you have your best batter um, and you want them to average the highest that they can, it makes more sense for them to be number four. So I think if you look, I think England was probably one country that has never had a lot of great number threes. And that is probably because what they have done is they have picked a secondary opener as a, like a backup in that sort of way. Jonathan Trott is a very good example of that. Mark Butcher is probably another very good example of that. And so I think from that perspective, then what you have is you have different ways that different countries look at it. And I think maybe this there is a bias in myself coming from Australia where we were taught very, very much that number three was the most important position. Um, and so therefore, if you move down to number four, it was like a weakness within your batting. So I think it's fair. Um, I'm not sure that means he's better than the other players because I think when you really start, like if you want to get to this level where you start to break down the players like this, I think the next thing that you will find is that there are massive parts of Kane's game that just don't stand up to the other three. Um, you know, especially who he scores runs against and where he scores runs, I think is very, very important when you look at Williamson. You know, we saw him make another double hundred at home against Sri Lanka. When are we going to start to see those sorts of knocks overseas against the best teams, against the best bowling attacks? At this stage, he really isn't that level of player. So you might give him a boost of batting at number three. I think if you were, you know, doing what we are doing at the moment, which is trying to look at the best 50 batters of all time, I don't see how Williamson goes ahead of any of those other three players if you do a really thorough breakdown. But you have to, get, I, I think it is tough at about at number three. I remember top order, a, 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 um, a former player I was talking to recently and we were talking about, I can't remember who, wh what player we were talking about, but talking about the difference between batting at number four and number five. And he's like, there's no difference batting between number four and number five. And I was like, there's 60 balls difference. And he looked at me really weird. I said, the average wicket comes every 60 balls. So, you're going to be in 60 balls later, essentially. Uh, and that's a big difference between, you know, being in the 10th over, being in the 20th over, being in the 30th over. So uh, it, these things do matter. Atworth is the best, says, uh, what about WA versus Wix, Vix final? What a great day. Uh, uh, Ashley Chandrasekhar has just gone absolutely brilliant here. Let me just, I've got to find the exact number. At Stumps, he was 46 not out of 266 balls on day one of the Sheffield Shield final. What an absolute legendary effort um, that is. Um, absolutely smashing the ball nowhere. <laughs> Brilliant. I uh, can't get enough of it. Um, yeah, Vicks were in good form coming in. Uh, looks like that's not a great score, but I think sometimes it's better in a Shield final if you know one of the teams fails early on and you know that allows for a scrappier game rather than uh, one score one team scoring really big but be really interesting to see um how that one goes i love a sheffield Shield final but they can be some of the worst games of cricket ever played i'm not sure if we admit that enough in australia they really should be six day games um but that's for another day greeny says where is marcus still in his career heading uh see ca may not want to keep him on contract if he can't do it in the odi team uh nor will wa want him 
Um, yeah, so I think from that point of view, I mean, Stoinis is really interesting because he's kind of caught between wanting to play for Australia and doing what he probably should be doing, which is playing as much T20 cricket as possible. Um, you know, he should be going out and, and getting as good as that. Um, so at one stage, he's going to have to make that decision. I, I'm pretty sure he's been told by people before, what are you doing? Why are you still trying to play for Australia? Um, you could be one of the best T20 franchise players in the world. But to be fair to him, he wants to play for Australia. You know, sort of dream of being a test player is still something that, you know, is that that pushes him. Um, and so you could see why he's he's still going down that that side of things. But yeah, he's it, it's an interesting next couple of years for him. I think him becoming, you know, more of a Ben Cutting type player would make a lot of sense. Blah blah says, will a hypothetical test league be able to afford multi-format players so they can choose it over T20 leagues? Or do you think enough people will tune in to watch Unadkat bowling to Vihari? I, I think I think a, t a test league is worth anywhere from two to four billion dollars over a five to ten year period. And I think if that's the case, you get a lot of players who might even prefer to play test cricket putting themselves in for that knowing that if they get to 28 29 they can always still cash in on the t20 train if they need to especially if they are above average talents um so yes i do think people i think it would be better than unad cat bowling to Vahari. um i think there are actually a lot of players who might prefer to play that or just think it's their better option but there's a, if you run a test cricket league properly sold it as a unit and did everything right with it it would be worth a lot of money and therefore outside of the IPL you'd still be looking at it being one of the best paid leagues in the world and if that's the case people would want to do it but I also think just as a product on its own there are so many professional cricketers in the world there are 4,000 professional cricketers in the world you say Unod Kat like Unod Kat would be last five years when the wobble ball has been going around and you know, uh, fast bowlers have been dominating. He's he might be a top fifteen bowler in the world, right? But he happens to play for you know Vahari. How many teams would Vahari walk into, right? I I don't think you can throw those players out and say they're not talented. I don't even think those are the right your right examples. I think your right example would more be: Do we want to see Blair Tickner bowling to Marcus Harris for ten years? That's a much more interesting one. Right, but there's so much talent out there that that's why I kind of think if there is money in a test league, and I know there is, I don't think it'll ever be done right. So I don't think this will ever happen. But I do think the play there would be players who would go towards it. Players will go where the money is, whatever league that is. And there's certainly, if you said to a player, you're going to get paid two hundred thousand dollars guaranteed and have all your medical bills covered for the next year um, as well, you know, have proper uh, throwdown sessions, facilities, everything that you need to be a professional cricketer for 200000 I think they would do it. And I'm basing that on the fact that a bunch of people took $200,000 to go play in America. You could certainly play these test players a lot more than 200000 if you had a proper league. Manuel says, thoughts on a cooked finch? Not, why is the word cooked? I saw the word cooked about 83 times in the comments. Is that become word of the day in cricket? And I missed it. Our thoughts on a cooked finch, not only being picked for MLC, but also captaining. Why would he do it to itself? Oh, look, I think they just wanted a... Um, I, I'm not sure if that... I, I'd have to have a look. Was that one of the teams that Victoria was involved with? I would say that there's a, a possibility there. 
I think they just wanted a safe captaincy option. He's still very, he's, I mean, you said here, just trying to see, but also captaining it. The captaining thing kind of makes more sense, right? If you're going to pick Finch at this point, the captaining is is the, the thing that is you are most interested about. Um, but yeah, I think he was really interested in it. Um, you know, I heard through fr friends that he was asking a lot of questions. So I think probably made himself available. Um, maybe he's looking at a potential coaching job uh, further on. I think, is he a big basketball or baseball fan as well i'm trying to trying to remember that i think he might be there's an american sport i think he really likes as well you know and a lot of them a lot of the guys that sort of went over there that was part of the thing of being around that kind of buzz um but yeah i don't think he would have been my choice i didn't end up working for any of the franchises so i don't really know specifically why they made that choice but i would say it was a leadership point uh and it says who's the most overcooked cricketer picked for their international team ever I saw someone say Jason Gillespie. I think he's... Um, uh, oh, wait, let me think of... I'm trying to think of the guy's name, the England player. Um, Brian Close. So what was Brian Close when he, when he played his last test was what? In his 40s... So Brian Close is a really interesting. For those who don't know, I should do a video about this one there. It's really fascinating. So Brian Close ends up playing 22 test matches despite the fact he only averages 25 with the bat. First class cricket, he averages 33. Doesn't really bowl that much in, in test cricket, but bowls a little bit, in, or bowls a lot in first class cricket. Ends up with over a thousand wickets at a decent average, but certainly not, I don't think everyone ever thought of him as a frontline bowler. F fantastic short leg fielder, right? But the thought was that he was brilliant against fast bowling, specifically. And so he was born in, I want to get this right, 1931. So he was born two years before Bodyline starts. And as I said, that first 20 years of his life, no one really bowls bounces that much. Um, so he wouldn't have grown up facing an absolute barrage of bounces. He then is it, starts playing professional cricket. I get the feeling he was very, very young. Let's have a look. I just want to get these years right. So he was 18 when he started playing professional cricket in 1949. Right, so he plays basically from the end of World War um, Two all the way through for yeah, and his last first class game is in nineteen seven eighty six. Right, so nineteen forty nine is his first first class game. Nineteen eighty six is his last first class game. From nineteen sixty five onwards, you get Wes Hall, Charlie Griffiths, John Snow, uh, Lily. Thompson, the West Indian bowlers, Imran Khan, all these very, very quick bowlers coming out everywhere. Uh, bowling completely changes. It becomes more of a survival thing, especially as this was in pre-helmet era. So the interesting thing is that of all the people that England brought back to face the West Indies bowling attack in 1976, um, it was Brian Close. And as I said, he was never a top-level batter. Um, his numbers don't suggest that he was ever an absolute great at that. And he was coming into an era of cricket that it didn't even make sense that Brian Close was still playing at this point from a batting perspective. Uh, and what I mean by that is, let's say he peaks in about 1955 with the bat. By 1970, he's already got to be on some kind of a decline. And he's never had a particularly high average anyway, when, when you have a look at that. And then it's like maybe five, six years beyond any kind of prime that he should have had as a professional batter. He's having to face something that has never existed before. 
right? So the bowling attack, let me just find this one. Uh, so the bowling attack for the West Indies in that test was Annie Roberts, Michael Holding, Wayne Daniel. I think who was their fourth bowler? Would have been. Well, they, I don't even know. They didn't even use a fourth bowler. So I can't even tell you who their fourth. They didn't need a fourth bowler, which is absolutely remarkable. Oh, Albert Padmore might have played in that one. Yeah, so he was the offie. They bowled him for three overs in that game, right? So think about it. At this stage in his career, Brian, Brian Close has played all this cricket and has been a very respectable, solid first-class player, so much so that he has played a bunch of test cricket. Um, brilliant at certain parts of the game, but certainly not brilliant at batting. And they pick him somewhere between five and ten years after his prime, and they get him to face something that has never, ever existed before. In his whole career, he never had to go up against three fast bowlers at the same time at that pace. And they made him do it. What year did we say he was? So he was born in 1931. Uh, and this test was 1976. He was 45. <laughs> he was at best five years past his prime, maybe 10 years past his prime at this point maybe 15 years past his prime at this point. And he has to face something that has never existed before in cricket. It's still one of the most bizarre things. I'll do a video about it one day because it really is. So if you're talking about the most overcooked cricketer ever played, uh, ever picked for their international team, I would think it was him. The other really interesting one is Aubrey Faulkner. Uh, you might, those who listen to the podcast might need to ring a bell at this point. Um, but Aubrey Faulkner is another classic one where <laughs> great cricketer before World War One. Goes to World War One, gets very sick, clearly isn't the same athlete that he was beforehand, plays professional cricket in England um, uh, on a jolly, really. He's already really a coach. And then is brought out of retirement, massively overweight, to play a one-off test at Lords just because South Africa's doing so bad. There's been a few of those sorts of um, situations uh, that you could go through through the history of cricket where someone has made a, a one-off comeback very, very late uh, in their career. Um, and he was certainly one of those um, there. So yeah, so when you talk about Jason Gillespie, Jason Gillespie went back and still played top-level first-class cricket in Australia. His role changed. Certainly, I think he's a fit, you know, in modern cricket, he's, he's a fair example of that. I'm trying to think, did Syed Ajmal make an international comeback after the throwing? There must be someone who's made a comeback after throwing who just wasn't the same bowler they were beforehand. Um, but yeah. Uh, Jimmy says, are tearaway, ki uh, tearaway quicks gifted? Did they always have it in them or can they develop late stages? Um, uh, it's a really tricky question because I'm not quite sure. I mean, are they gifted? I mean, they have the fast twitch muscle fiber to be able to bowl at 90 miles an hour. Uh, so that's a gift. Uh, did they always have it in them or can they develop later stages? So you've got here, Nokia, Umran, Lee, Stark, Johnson. The only one of those I know who wasn't an out and out quick when he was young is Nokia. So Nokia was thought to be more of a fast medium bowler. Um, and he worked a lot in the gym, worked a lot in his action and then became an out and out fast bowler. Everyone else you've named on that list was very, very fast from a young age. Uh, Stark, Stark is possibly the different a different one. Then you can put Joffrey in as well, only because they were both wicket keepers. So, but once they picked up a ball, they were very, very fast. Um, so, those guys were there were guys there that were probably pushing. I, Mitchell Johnson talks about this on a 
on the podcast I did with him. I think it's on the podcast I did with him. It might have been one of the ones when he was doing the podcast with Barrett where he talks about he bowled a ball really early on where I think it was high 80s when he was in his teens and that changed his life. So we know that most of those guys can probably bowl from 83 to 87 miles an hour when they were around 18 years old. Look, he's the only one I'm not sure about and I'd need to do more research, but I would have thought everyone else there could do that. But if you look at the under 19s, when you see quicks, it's very rare that they're bowling around 90 miles an hour, but anyone bowling above 83, 85 miles an hour generally is going to get a lot quicker. Like if you look at very young Hazelwood, at that stage, Hazelwood was bowling around 83 miles an hour. All right, sorry, at that stage, Hazelwood was bowling much closer to around 80, uh, 81 miles an hour when he was a teenager. And then it gets a lot quicker. But if you look at Cummins, obviously, Cummins could bowl 90 miles an hour by the time he was 18, uh, which is one of the reasons that Cummins was thought to be the absolute golden child of that. Um, and I'm trying to remember, if Brett Lee was certainly very, very quick around 18, 19, but I'm not sure he was quite at that pace. Obviously, Umran Malik, I'm not sure how old Umran Malik is, so I, I can't help you with that one. So I hope that helps, Jimmy. Nikon says, do you think having two balls in ODI cricket has reduced the impact of finger spinners in it? Uh, or do you think, uh, or what What would you do um, to change? Well, the reason we have two balls in one day cricket is because of um, the balls are rubbish, <laughs> right? Part of the reason that finger spinners was, I don't know how old you are, Nikon, but if you go back and have a look at Darren Lehman's figures, he actually has really decent bowling figures. Darren Lehman is an absolutely terrible bowler. Darren Lehman shouldn't be bowling five overs per game in one-day cricket, but he could do that because he could bowl with a low arm with a soft ball and get away with it. That's not what we want in cricket, really. We want we want the best off-spinners to get through, but we don't want the most rubbish off-spinners to get through and to be able to steal overs out from you. So we don't want Michael Clark and Darren Lehman bowling almost underarm um, you know, and sliding the ball through. We want them to have to actually bowl a little bit better. Um, the one thing I would say is that finger spinners have got to a point where they're still, I think, I'd have to go back and check, but I think their economies are fine. They don't take as many wickets as they used to nick on. I think that might also be the way that people have changed about playing them. Um, I still think a very good finger spinner is good in one-day cricket, but I think finger spinners have the same problem in one-day cricket as they do in T20 cricket in, in that they are seen as a very good matchup for a lot of players now. And so, you know, that means that Teams don't bowl them as effectively. I would say the matchups have caused as much problem to off spinners as the old ball has. But realistically, <laughs> the ball was absolutely rubbish. It was a joke that we were playing one day cricket with the ball between the 25 and 37 over mark. It was absolutely a pathetic um, thing to be using in a professional sport. They had to do something about it. I would have preferred they went out and invest a lot of money to try and fix it. They decided, ah, oh, we'll just use two. Uh, which probably tells you a lot about cricket. All right, uh, I'll play one more ad and then I'll go back through uh, the end of the chat and see if there's any more super chats or if there's anything else in there um, that anyone has asked. But you are listening to Wagon Wheel. I am Jared Kimber. Christophe, uh, yeah, thanks for your super chat. Yeah, I don't know why the other one went through. Sorry about that. But I did see your follow-up question, but thank you for the super chat anyway. Thank you for everyone for their super chats. Uh, he says, is Bradman easily the best cricketer of all time? Yes. Well, one of my favorite things is, and we look back on this and we do this a lot now, and we say things like, um, oh, but look, he was playing against amateurs and he only played a couple of countries and I know all these sorts of things. It's like, yeah, 
So what about the other cricketers in that era? They weren't averaging 100. <laughs> there were absolutely fantastic cricketers in that era that weren't averaging anywhere near what Bradman did. I find it hard to make an argument that anyone is better. I think that Imran Khan had a decade where he probably had as much impact statistically as Bradman. But I think when you break that down, he was starting to ease off as a bowler in that point. And his batting was um, good, but not. Like, he averaged 50, so you have to respect that for a decade. But I was from a lot of not outs and 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 50 odds and everything else. And it wasn't the same. It wasn't the, like a frontline batter averaging 50. Then you've got Sobers, who probably a bit like Callis would have ended up with maybe an even better record if he couldn't bowl with the bat just because he comes into the team so early on. Um, and obviously it took him a long time to, to get started. Although with Callis, he played so many games, he probably catches up. Sobers is really, really interesting. But, you know, his bowling average is not great. Now, a lot of that is because he was more than one bowler, right? He was two bowlers slash three bowlers. And if it was if it was just a seam bowler, he probably averages around 28 with the ball. And if he ended up averaging whatever it was, 56 with the bat and 28 with the ball, it's still not quite Bradman, but we're starting to get there, aren't we? You know, and again with Callis, you know, he averages a little bit less than, um, than Sobers with the ball. However, he bowls 15 less overs a game than, than Sobers does. Um, and then there's no other, obviously there's no other batter anywhere near that level. You've got Sid Barnes is the other interesting one. Didn't play as much cricket as he should have. Probably, maybe, arguably, we didn't even see him in his prime um, because of everything that went on with him as a professional cricketer. What we do know with him is he averaged 21 with the ball against Australia and, I don't know, nine against South Africa. Uh, that wasn't a, he did play some decent South African sides, it is also possible that, you know, he did very well, but because that's all we have against him, like at least Bradman, we actually have a, a little bit more um, cricket, even if um, it is still quite limited. I, I think you'd have to say with Sid Barnes, look, put it this way, Sid Barnes averages 21 with the ball against Australia and Bradman averages 80 with the bat against England and averages more in England than he does in Australia. Even the, the, the very most basic breakdowns, you can't compare the two of them. Um, yeah, and there's... And, and Sachin's a really, really interesting one. There's another question about him I'll get to in a moment, Krishna. Sachin's a really, really interesting one because of that sort of longevity um, side of things. But to be fair, Bradman also had incredible longevity when you factor that he played before and after the war. Um, and we missed maybe another what, seven years of his career. I'm not saying his prime, but maybe the end of his prime. Um, although, um, as Andy Zoltzman once had a look at, Bradman didn't have a peak. His whole career was a peak. Like, there is no... It's just, he failed in one test. It's crazy. Um, Archit says, uh, how is the job of a director of cricket operation different from a coach in the IPL? Coaches, uh, they decide on what the training um, uh, is going to be, what the players are going to do. Uh, they obviously talk about batting order. They would talk about bowling um, plans. They would look at fielding stuff. They will be working on making sure that someone can clear their front leg and this bowler can bowl a wrong and that this guy is used to bowling with a new ball in case he has to use it in a game. Um, then depending on the team, obviously the coach then would quite often generally um, has the last say on the team. 
some franchises there's more of a selection committee some franchises there's less of a selection committee all these sorts of things so coach does all those sorts of things a director of cricket hires the coach so that's the first big difference he also then usually hires the um, assistant coaches although quite often they come in a package with the coach in some cases but more often than not there will be assistant coaches director of cricket will also pick uh you know all the other staff you know masseuse physio conditioning coach analyst um, sometimes coaches come with analysts sometimes they don't um the director of cricket is then also involved with the draft in a way that generally the coach is more there as an advisory role so if it works properly what should happen is the coach should say this is the style of cricket we want to play and we think we'll be successful and then the director of cricket should go out and make sure that they have those players available the coach can't do everything they can't be actively scouting and also doing that because generally what happens is then a coach picks a player when there are three or four better options available to them which sadly does happen sometimes um then the, the director of cricket it depends on at what level but they would also be planning for the next season and perhaps the season after uh they would be you know making sure that their players and their coaches and their staff are upskilled uh in the off season and everything else they would be making sure that you know everyone has what they have um, what, what they need um before they come back you know checking in on everyone in in different ways and the coach would do some of this as well mickey arthur is probably a good example of someone who's probably a little bit of both uh and there are some proper coach type coach people like um Someone like Roddy Eswick is a real coach sort of person. And there are probably other people, say someone like Darren Goff is probably more of a director of cricket type person. I'm just going on people that I know and have worked with. Yash says, uh, Bouvi fall uh, due to injury. What's your opinion? Yes, I, I think you can track it back. It doesn't make sense because there are times when he's absolutely unplayable and there are times when he's not unplayable. He hasn't lost the ability to be unplayable. What he has lost the ability is to be able to do that consistently. That's either fighting injury or fighting age or both. Ashish says, was Dravid a better batter than Tendulkar? He sat in Senawa. Senawa. He's put a W on the end. Do we put W on the end of that? I don't know. Uh, better. Uh, Tendulkar played in three distinct eras. He plays in the 80s era, he plays in the 90s era, and then he plays in the flat pitch era of the 2000s. Dravid comes in later, doesn't really have to tack, or doesn't have to play in the 80s era at all. Um, doesn't really have to, and by the 80s era, I'm really saying that sort of, that's the sort of helmet crossover era, right? Dravid comes in in the 90s, but also, I have to have a look at the exact year he starts, but um, he comes in as an adult, Actually, no, I'll get to that adult bit in a moment. But he comes in and... How have I managed to spell Raul Dravid's name wrong of all the people in the world? Um, it's not even a hard name. Uh, and that was the Dravid. That's the easier bit. Actually, Rahul's pretty easy too. Now I'm just talking to myself. Um, let's have a look. So, yeah. So, uh, Dravid comes in in 96, right? A middle of 96. So, he misses those... Again, 90s is a really tough batting era and he's missed over half of that. So, the majority of Dravid's career is in the 2000s. So, fantastic player. I mean, you know, I've written so many things in, in his favour and I think he's probably a much closer batter um, when it comes to Sachin Tendulkar than people realise. But there's a few different reasons why he's not as good. One is he doesn't have to battle through those two earlier eras. And he gets the majority of his career is in the better batting era. The other thing is really, really important. Dravid was born 
1973. And so that means he makes his debut when he's 23. Sachin Tendulkar made his debut when he was a fetus. He wasn't even born. I'm pretty sure his mum went out and, and took guard the first time uh, for him. And he just was whacking the ball with an umbilical cord. So to have a record like he does when you start at that age is just... It doesn't happen, right? I was talking before about Sobers and Callis starting too early because they were all-around talents. And you're talking about someone who started even earlier than that. You know, you shouldn't be at, you shouldn't be an international test quality batter at that age. So to be able to do it at that age and then still be able to do it when you're basically 35, 36. I'd say the last couple of years, he probably ruins his average by continuing on. He really, you know, probably should have stopped by that point. Um, his effectiveness certainly wasn't anywhere near what it had been earlier. But I just don't think you can compare the two when you have to factor in the different eras that they did actually play in and then the age. Uh, that, that's I think it makes Tenduka really, really tricky. If you just look at his batting average, I think you... I don't, I don't know where does he fit in the old... So the all-time... Um, let's have a look. Highest batting average. You can hear me feverishly um, having a look here. So highest career average... Tendulkar is what? Why can't I find it? Ah! All right, one, two. So Tendulkar's in the top. Oh, there he is. So what's he, about 25, depending on what you put as the minimum amount of runs. So if that's 1,000 runs by the look of this, so you got Adam Voges and uh, Eddie Painter, those sorts of guys in there. Daryl Mitchell. <laughs> Didn't realize he was so high already as well. Right, so that's if you go there. So Tadulka would go a little bit higher if you do two thousand or three thousand, right? But he's still—I don't think he's in the top ten batting averages of all time. But if you just have a look at some of the other players who are on this list, like for instance, um, someone like Daryl Mitchell, you're talking about or, or Adam Voges. You're talking about players who came in when they were fully fledged and at the absolute top of their game. And you're comparing that to someone who came in as a teenager. And this goes back to my big uh, Dale Steen and Jimmy Anderson rule, right? I think Dale Steen was a better bowler than Jimmy Anderson. But let's take that away for one second, all right? Let's say that Raul Dravid is a better test batter than Sachin Tendulkar. And now let's say that Dale Steen is a better bowler than Jimmy Anderson. Is it better to have Dale Steyn for 13 years, as great as he was, or would it be better to have Jimmy Anderson, not quite as good as he is, for 18 years? Even if you make the argument that Raul Dravid was a slightly better batter than Sachin Tendulkar, the sheer extra years that Sachin Tendulkar gives you um, means that you don't have to find a professional batter to replace him. And not only that, he's not playing at a replacement level, is he? I mean, he's averaging 54. So from, what was his first year? Is it 88, 89? Yeah, so he starts in 1989 and he finishes in 2013, right? And if we go through this year by year, let's have a look at how many down years he actually has, right? So he averages 35 in those first four years. He averages over 40. So 20, 1991, he plays two test matches. He averages 19. 1995, he plays three test matches. He averages 29. 2003, he has one bad year where he averages 17. 
2006, he has a bad year. Then his next bad year is 2012. And then even 2013, even if he was, well, those last couple of years, he probably shouldn't have been playing. He's still averaging around 30 in those last couple of years. So what have we got there? He has played for 25 years. Is that right? I think that's right. And we've got four years where he's below, below what an average batter should be doing. And almost every other year, he's not just above it, but massively above it. Like he averages 91, he averages 80, he averages 62, he averages 68, he averages 70, he averages 91, he averages 55, <laughs> he averages 55 again. The ability to do that over a 25 year um, period means that for 25 years, you essentially know that you're gonna get a player who over a three year period at any one stage is gonna average over 40, probably over 50, and at times over 60. You can't compare that with a normal player like Ricky Ponting or Raul Dravid, who gives you the same sort of thing over 14 or 15 years. He's giving you an extra, almost peak level batter, period, right? That's absolutely incredible, which, which you have to factor in, I think, to any conversation about him. I think that's what makes him so tough to compare to other players is the amount of cricket he plays over such a long period of time. You might say that peak um, Dravid was better than peak Tendulkar. I don't think that's true. You might, actually, let's take Dravid out of it. You might say that peak Lara was better than Tendulkar. That is probably true. Lara, is at his best, is still the most devastating player I've ever seen with the bat. You know, I never saw peak Richard, so I can't quite compare him to that. I've seen a lot of other good players. I just think Lara was absolutely at his best. But Lara's career does not compare to Dundalkas when you stretch it out. And that's the big, big difference, I think, between the two of them. Um, and that's the difference between Tendulkar and everyone else. So to average 50, when you come into profession, uh, when you come into test cricket at 20 or 21 and you leave at 34, 35, you're still great. No one's taking that away from you. It's still a fantastic effort. But it means that you didn't have to play as a teenager and it means that you didn't have to play in your late 30s when things were starting to dull. To be able to do what Tendilka did at both ends of his career is... So yeah, I think he was pretty good. Yuvashant says, is Rangana Harath better? <laughs> All conditions bowled immurely. No. Because I think Murali. I'd have to go back through the numbers. Remember, they bowled in very different eras. Harath is a very much a DRS bowler, and Murali was very much a pre-DRS bowler for the majority of his time. But I would have said that because Murali had the ability to spin the ball so much on surfaces that didn't have a lot of spin, um, I would have thought that he had him beat. The other thing about Murali um, that I think is... Oh, just clicked on the wrong question there, but I think I missed this one before. Um, I think uh, the other thing is... Um, that uh, he's not a um, because he had over, he could put overspin on the ball. He's a constant threat in a way that Harath wasn't. Um, and I think Harath bowled in a better. I think Harath bowled in the perfect era for him, in that he bowls when DRS is coming around and he can skid the ball into the stumps. Whereas I think Murali had to get wickets in a majority a, a lot of different ways. I think modern finger spinners have become a lot more one dimensional. Not be, it's not a mistake. They're doing that correctly, but it's because you have the ability to skid the ball through. 
Nagenda Pamula uh, for Super Chat says, why New Zealand ignored Ajaz Patel after taking uh, Tenfa? Well, they haven't ignored him. He has played after then. He, look, he's an incredibly limited bowler. And in some ways, I think they're using him uh, very well. He did play against Pakistan and wasn't particularly good. Um, he needs a raging turner. He needs a lot of uh, the conditions to be in his favour. Um, and he partly took a 10-wicket haul because he didn't have a bowling partner with him who had the ability to take another wicket. Like, I commentated that game. You know, if, if he had a decent spinner at the other end, if he had Matt Kuhneman at the other end or... Who else have we got? Keshev Maharaj or um, Jack Leach, you know, um, Rakeem Cornwall, Roston Chase. One, they, those guys would have got one, two, three wickets in that. You know, the fact they had Will Somerville was a huge um, advantage in him taking those 10 wickets. Look, all credit goes to him. But I said then and there that that's what he is going to be at his best for. Probably playing in Bangladesh, India, Sri Lanka, even somewhere like Zimbabwe might help him. But Pakistan, West Indies, other places where spinners generally can do okay, I don't think will will favour him that much. He really does need the conditions a lot in his favour. Um, he doesn't take a lot of wickets domestically, unless that's changed recently. But my my memory was he never took a lot of wickets dom domestically. That's why he doesn't play there. Um, and he did play in Pakistan, and he looked pretty toothless. And, and he was out-bowled in Pakistan by Michael Bracewell and um, Ishodi. So... Uh, you know, I think all those things um, have played into why he hasn't played more. Um, I just want to finish up with Krishnav, who said, I sent the super chat uh, without the message, and then he says, if Bradman easily the best player of all time, or do you think because of generational differences, Kohli across formats, Kalis, Imran are equally good? So one thing I would say is, when I say Bradman is the best of all time, what I am saying is that no player has ever dominated their era better than uh, anyone else. If you go back, Krishnav, and you have a look at my video of what would happen if you took an 18-year-old Bradman or a 21-year-old Bradman and brought him into modern cricket, I think he would struggle. I don't think he would average 70. He might still average 30 or 40, but I'm not sure he would because his game was so tailored to his era, and I don't know how quickly he would adapt to a different era. And cricket is a lot better now. Um, Bradman did go up against some really, really good bowlers, but he didn't go up against the depth of bowling attacks that you have now. He didn't have to go up against analysis, you know, everything that Coley has had to do. I mean, to be fair, there's no way, if you're looking at the best cricketer of all time, that Coley is one of them. Um, you know, he's in any conversation. He'd probably make it um, in many ways, but I can't see how Coley, um, even even if you include across formats, um, is the best cricketer of all time when compared to, I don't know, Viv Richards and A.B. De Villiers, right? Um, plus all-rounders and everything else, as you said. Callis and Imran Khan and, you know, Garfield Sobers, you'd have got a few others there. None of them dominated their era like Bradman dominated his era. And that's the most important thing to do because that's all Bradman could do, right? He can't, he can't play cricket in our era. He could only play against the players that he had. And the second best player in his era was 40% worse than him. That doesn't even make sense that you can be that much better. That would be like, you know, people talk about, you know, Bradman and Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt Chamberlain was, was scoring 50 points a game when other people were scoring 35 points a game. 
when other people were getting a similar amount of rebounds as him, right? And he didn't have that much success. He actually had to change his game to get success. So we know that he wasn't as efficient. There has never been a player who has been that much better than his... Than, and also, Will Chamberlain only did that for a couple of years. Bradman did that over an entire career. It really is. It's really hard. And there are ways of picking at his record. Uh, he only ever played in England and Australia, which is really, really odd. Is that right? Yeah, England and Australia. So even when he played the lesser teams, he played them in Australia. That said, he would have smashed South Africa everywhere. He would have smashed India everywhere. He would have smashed West Indies everywhere had he traveled to all those other places. Um, if, he, if Bradman had played against New Zealand as consistently as he played against England, he probably averages 120 or 130. That's the truth of it. He didn't even play the worst test playing nation of his era at all. Bradman never played a test against New Zealand at all. If he does... It would have been absolute carnage. Um, I'm not sure they would have ever got him out. And we know that Wally Hammond, who wasn't even as good as Bradman, that's kind of what happened when he played against New Zealand. Um, so, you know, Bradman in that case is kind of like the opposite of what we see with a lot of modern cricketers. And, and you know, that, that, that not stat pad, because that's a stupid way of putting it, but... If you're a great player, obviously you're going to average more against the worst teams than the, than the other teams. Whereas Bradman did that, but he actually, the team he played the most was the best team and he still averaged in his 80s against them. I mean, it just there's just no weaknesses from that perspective. Um, absolutely phenomenal cricketer. Anyway, I don't know why this has been so long, but it has been so long. But thank you to everyone. Uh, it must have been good questions today. Uh, thank you to Nagenda, Krishnav. Were they the only Super Chats? Yeah, they were our Super Chats. But also thank you to everyone who asked the question or... Um, uh, put something up on the on on the chat. Anyone who is listening on all the different places that you can listen and everywhere else. Um, and thank you again. And remember, you can support us on Patreon. I've got one of my oh, Bodyline uh, t-shirts here. If you want to support Bodyline t-shirts, go out and manscape yourself. Um, do everything you can and uh, support us by liking, by pressing the bell icon, by doing all the things that you do to support. And any anywhere you can send us a put up a review of our podcast. Anywhere that you can share it, all these things help. But thank you very much. And I will see you again uh, on, what, Monday or Tuesday for the next episode of Uncovered. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makanda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Sports Social Podcast Network.